A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. Yes, I'm back. Thanks for hanging on for the last couple of weeks. Uh, this week, we are back to normal. Lots of discussion with some truly badass women. First up, I talked to Dr. Vanessa Gash about just why it is that men seem to be so upset when their partners out-earn them. Plus, we talked to Amanda Prowse and her son, Josh, about their relationship with depression and each other. And Riva Lera talks to us about spina bifida and rethinking what our bodies mean. She's truly inspirational and I can't wait for you to hear from her. First up, the pay gap. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Now, do you know how much your partner earns? Do they out-earn you and do you mind? Well, a new study says that men begin to feel very, very threatened when their female partners out-earn them. Uh, In fact, the more the women earn, the more threatened the men feel. And they actually feel much happier when they are the breadwinners. Here to talk about the study now is Dr. Vanessa Gash, sociologist who co-authored the study, Vanessa, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, so tell us, why is it that men feel oh, threatened, insecure, when their partners out-earn them? We're not entirely certain. Um, one of the motivations of the paper was to try to explain why the partner pay gap has not decreased over time. And so we know that women have increased their labour market participation rates, We know that they've been entering into high-skilled, high-paid jobs. Um, And when we had a little look at the partner pay gap, which is the earning differentials between husbands and wives, Mm -hmm. we thought it would have decreased over time. And what we found is that it was pretty stable over a a 12 to 14-year period, which is what we looked at. And so one of the things that we tried to do then was to try to determine whether, whether people liked it or not and whether that might explain why it was so constant, so stable over time. Um, And so what we found was that men, and we're not sure why, I'm sure some of your uh, callers might tell us, (laughs) um, men um, basically had what we called a little psychological uh, like premium from earning their wives. So they had a, a slight psychological benefit from doing that. And they also had a strong penalty if they were sort of minority earners in the household. So that's if they earned less than 40% of total household income. Um, And we attribute that to, I guess, the male breadwinner ideology, which we've given 
um, not sufficient attention to as a component of, of male identity. And so we say they had a small penalty. What does that mean in reality? Well, it just means that, you know, when we analyse this empirically using sort of the standard models in, in um, happiness economics or happiness research, we found that there was a statistically significant uh, relationship between earning status within the home. And so they were on average slightly more or less satisfied if they were minority earners or more satisfied if they had out recently out-earned their partners. What did the women think about this? Did you look at that at all? Oh, God. Well, yes. So as a woman, <laughs> I went into this research project um, with you know strong expectations for the female sample. Um, and um, the women very much held their cards to their chest. Um, so we thought that perhaps they'd show dissatisfaction with being secondary earners. Um, we thought they'd, they would have a preference for being equal earners. And we had expectation, given the literature, that they would not like to be majority earners. So they would not like to be breadwinners. The main reason for that is it still remains unusual for women to be breadwinners within the household. And so it's a bit difficult for women to be breadwinners because it's I guess, normatively unusual. Um, and try as we may, um, we found no um, evidence of women um, caring much either way, whatever their earning status was within the home. So, so women are... Pollyanna on this, in my opinion, but, but ultimately <laughs> no statistically significant uh, relationship. That's really interesting because I sort of relate this debate to the who pays for dinner on a date debate. Right. Where I know that, you know, I I personally feel that unless you are at a point in a relationship where you kind of know you're going to see each other again, and it's going to equal out at some point. You should just split things, just split it down the middle. And yet I know lots of women who will say, no, if a guy doesn't pay, I'm not seeing him again. And lots of men who say, no, if a woman doesn't let me pay, I'm not seeing her again. Or if she doesn't offer to pay, I'm not interested. So we seem to be really caught up in what money means in terms of our relationship. Can I ask you, did you look at how happy in the relationship people are when they earn more or less, or is it just their overall happiness? Um, so, no, we, we, we could have. The data set we use is, is extraordinarily detailed and actually does have indicators on, on the quality of the relationship and happiness of the relationship. And so our indicator is related to like happiness of life overall, um, and so, yeah, so we don't look at that one thing. But in terms of of um, the role of income, I guess, in people's relationships, I mean, we, we, yeah, we did think that equal earning would be more, um, would have more positive associations for women in terms of, of life satisfaction, but we couldn't find that. What's interesting for our findings for men is that um, they were just as, um, so we compare a secondary earner men relative to equal earners and majority earners. And um, there was no difference between equal earners and majority earners. The, the source of dissatisfaction in men is when they earn less than 40% of total household income. Um, so equal earning meh, doesn't seem to have you know much of, of a sway, but it doesn't have a negative effect, crucially. Oh, so that's interesting. So what we're saying here is it's not that men need to be the big earners they don't need to be the breadwinners they don't need to be the um it's not a kind of i'm, I'm thinking trying to think of a radio friendly phrase for this it's not a kind of um a sign of their masculinity in terms of what they earn mm. it's actually when they earn less that the problems yeah. arise yeah do you think that's, that's right. because of how 
the expectations we set for men around what success means at a very early age. So we do really link socioeconomic and earning success with kind of overall success for men, don't we? We do. We do, absolutely. And you're very right to underline the fact that it's a positive finding and effect mm. that the, the negative effect is primarily with secondary earners. It's not equal earners. They don't have the problem. Um, and that's a great thing for, you know, progressives like politics or, you know, egalitarian futures for men and women. Um, it is secondary earners. So it's men who earn much less. And they are unusual um, in the sample. And so most, um, let me just double check, most men are majority earners. So 54% of our sample earn more than... Um, 60% of total household income, and equal earners are a third of the sample, which is the same for women. Mm. Whereas secondary earners are just um, 12 to 13% of the sample. And I think they kind of suffer from being unusual in terms of their their male cohort. I That's really interesting. I, so what we're saying here is actually it's not... It, it's actually such a small, a small number that are the kind of... Um, that earn less than their partners, that actually mm. they sort of feel maybe isolated. Would that be right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They'd feel isolated. They'd feel, you know, unusual relative to their mates. They'd feel like they're, you know, in sociology, we'd say they're engaging in, you know, gender atypical behavior. Okay. Mm. And so they're having a hard time because they're not doing what they feel is typical of a man. They're, they're not you know, participating in the labour market, they're not being as successful in the labour market as they would like to be given their male cohort. Mm. And so that's one of the problems too. How can we help? I'm not sure help is the right word, but how can we help or support these men? Because I actually think we sort of, we do need to normalise the fact that, you know, sometimes you are going to be with somebody of a different gender. They're going to be earning more than you. And that's just the way it goes. Um, and also, if you're with somebody for decades, presumably there are going to be periods where both of you kind of out earn each other or it goes you know, up and down a bit. How can we help or support men who are in that lower earning bracket so that they're not feeling like they're sort of secondary citizens in some way? I'm not entirely sure what the answer is is to that but i do think that you're right that um they do need to be supported um and so culturally we have a stereotypical view of how men should behave and how women should behave and those sex-based stereotypes are very much limiting for both men and for women and i think one of the conclusions we can draw from our analysis is that for men who engage in, I guess, this sex atypical behaviour of being less financially successful than their wives, they suffer because of it. And I guess, you know, we just need to move forward and try to think about, you know, how to how to support people because of who they are, not because of, of their sex. And mm. um, finally, Vanessa, is there any... Um, do you think there is any link between these feelings for men around not feeling good enough unless they are equal or primary earners and mm. potentially what we're seeing on another study is the kind of rise of single women in the higher socioeconomic brackets so actually women with very high educational levels very high earners are finding it harder to meet somebody do you yeah. think those two things are linked yeah no absolutely and so our research is on married co-resident partners Mm. Um, and so that basically means that we have a selection process whereby only certain types of people 
enter into married relationships. And we do know, um, unfortunately, um, for those of you who believe in love and are romantics, um, that people select into marriage according to, to financial success. Um, and so less financially successful men tend to be less able to attract partners than more financially successful men. Um, and so that's definitely part of, of the story. And in other research I've done with um, colleagues um, in Bath, um, Lynn Cook, we've looked at divorce rates and unemployment, male unemployment is a divorce risk in marriage. And so there are very traditional um, expectations on average within marriage um, which are which are quite uh, restrictive of both men and women. Dr. Vanessa Gash, thank you so much for joining us there, talking about how men and women earners see each other when they're married to each other. Turns out, if you are a man married to a woman earning more than you, maybe you're not feeling that great about it. I'd really love to talk to you about it because I think it's such an interesting issue in tonight's show we are talking a lot about men's issues how men feel about themselves uh what the future of masculinity is because god knows 2020 hasn't been great for any of us but particularly for men i think i've had a a really hard year this year Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market this is the badass women's hour podcast you can get in touch on all the socials on at badass women's hour uh, now here on badass women's hour we are big fans of best-selling author amanda prowse uh, her books are some of our favorites i have to say Um, But her latest one is very, very different. Rather than a fictional family, it is her own family. And we are joined now by Amanda Prowse and her son, Josiah Hartley. Hello, both. Hi, Harriet. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Let's start. Amanda, let's start with you. Tell us what happened when your son, Josiah, came to you and said he was struggling. It was kind of... I think a weird one looking back because I would have said to you in fact I probably did say to you a few mm-hmm. years ago that I was a bit of a smug mum 
Um, I would say that I know my kids back to front, inside out, that I know everything about them. I've read the book on good mumming, tick, tick, tick. So I eat dinner with them. I go on holiday with them. I spend time with them. I know their friends. Um, I make sure they've always got a vest on. They're well fed and they text me when they arrive. So I thought, you know what? I am absolutely nailing this parenthood thing. This is just, I don't know what everyone's worried about. This is peasy pits. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Josh was, uh, how old were you, Josh? I think you were about 17 when it probably started, probably went in 16, 17. Josh was always super smart at school, um, quite unlike myself. He sailed through all his exams, um, didn't have to study too much and just had a real gift for sciences um, and, and that sort of subject. And he was going to go off to university and in my head lived this great life. And he was going to, you know, do all the things I had in my mind, which is is very easy when you have a child to sort of project all the things you want for them. And not only materially stuff, but, you know, I thought he's going to be the best sculptor, lawyer, cowboy, artist, (laughs) actor, you know, surgeon you've ever met. It's going to be fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then just before Josh took his A-levels, I can only describe it is that he he unraveled. And it was such a shock, actually, Harriet, because... I think we always kind of expect our kids to maybe have a little bit of, you know, teenage angst or, you know, things. They're always going to hit bumps in the road. But this was completely different. Josh, um, Josh just, as I say, unraveled. He was unrecognisable to me. And I now know unrecognisable to himself. Josh, you, I heard your mum say you're unrecognisable to her and to yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on at that time for you? Well, it's such a subtle thing, becoming depressed. No one goes to bed fine and wakes up with depression. It can take Mm -hmm. a series of several weeks to months. And I think partly due to my own ignorance around mental health and depression in particular, it really let it get its, uh, and it really sort of took a hold of me without me Mm -hmm. fully knowing what was happening to me. And before I knew what was happening to me, it was, I'm hesitant to say too late, but I was well within its grip. I mean, that's a... such an insightful thing you said there which was you know I I felt because I didn't really know what was going on it was too late and difficult what do you what do you know now that you wish you had known then that it's relatively normal it's Mm. fairly common and the unfortunate truth is probably multiple people you know suffer with depression you're not you're not alone and it's not unique and one of depression's nastiest tricks, it makes you feel completely alone and the only one suffering in this quite unique way when it's just not the case. I think knowing um, there are others like like me out there would have really helped. Yeah. I mean, this is the setting really for, for your new book, which the two of you have written together. And I think that's... I, mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine a just the process of writing a book with somebody from my family um, but also <laughs> being as honest and as open as you both are in The Boy Between which is essentially charts the story of this period of your lives Amanda what made you what made the two of you decide you wanted to write this? I suppose the truth is it's the book I didn't want to write um, and, and I know in previous interviews, Josh, Josh has been asked, what was the hardest thing about writing the book? And he says, spending eight hours a day with my mother, which I, you know, I totally accept. <laughs> I totally accept. It didn't come without challenges. Plus, Josh is severely dyslexic. 
So you can imagine it was a slow and plodding process to start with, but what an incredibly brave and brilliant thing he's done. Um, I really just feel like, you know, I've scribed my bits, but what he's done, laying himself and his emotions and feelings there, I think it's one of the, it's incredibly brave. I'm superbly proud of Josh, you know, every day, but for this particularly. Um, It all started a bit of an accident, actually. Uh, I, we really got to the point where we were at our wits end. Um, Josh wasn't responding to any suggestions. He was sleeping more than he was awake. He wasn't uh, taking care of his personal hygiene. His living conditions were fairly grim. He was in his room, just closed down. And I was loath to intervene because I thought, you know what? That's his last bastion of control. When everything else in his, his world feels like it's spiraling out of control, I almost have to just let him you know, be in that situation. And he has to come to me when he's ready or you know, help us find solutions. And I sent Josh an email and I said, you know, Josh, we are all struggling because um, I know we've spoken about it before, but when depression comes to live in your house, it lives in every room. You know, it doesn't shut itself away neatly on a shelf in a cupboard and you only have to look at it when you open the cupboard, when you've run out of a towel. It's not like that. It's in every room, in, in, in between every brick, in every way. It's everywhere you look. And it, and it really, for us, it took all the joy from the house. It took all the light from the windows and it was incredibly hard. And I felt I was sinking, not with depression because I've never had depression, but I felt very low. Um, my husband and I were warring, each wanting to do different things to help Josh. And we were almost reaching, well, we were, we were, we were at desperation point really. And I remember I sent Josh an email because I wasn't having any luck talking to him face to face. He wouldn't look at me, he wouldn't look at anyone really. He was quite lost to his illness at this point. And I said, you know, Josh, just tell us, what do we do to help you? Because we're running on empty. We're running out of ideas. And Josh replied and he said, mum, come into my room, turn my pillow over, bring me a cup of tea and open the window. And I'm quite ashamed to say that I replied and I said, oh, what, like you were ill? Mm. And Josh replied and he said, I am ill, mum. And um, so I find that quite, I find that quite hard to talk about because it was such a, such a it's such a terrible indictment of my ignorance and my naivety but really that was the start and I I, before we knew it we were we had emails flying back and forth and and Josh just latched onto this means of communication and we had sort of 20,000 words and um, I can remember I showed it to someone who I was working on with something else and she said this is the first time I've ever really understood what it must be like to have depression and I thought that's actually a really good point if you've never had it and you don't understand it, and you share all my frustrations, why doesn't he get up? Why doesn't he wash his hair? Why doesn't he get a job? Why doesn't he talk to me? Why doesn't he ask for help? You know, all these things that are someone with a, um, an unfoggy mind is thinking rationally and logically, which you just can't apply to a depressed mind. I, I, it was so frustrating. And I thought, actually, yeah, this is probably a, a good idea that we do this. And, and in the first instance, I think it's fair to say, Josh, isn't it, that we just thought it was a good way to get Josh to talk. I don't think we really thought beyond that, did we? Josh, what was it about the medium of email, do you think, that allowed you or gave you the opportunity to share what was going on for you? I think it doesn't matter how long it takes you to get it down, as long as you get it down. Mm. And you can be very considered with what you want to say. You can choose you know, every word perfectly. It doesn't matter if it takes you an hour to construct the email. It's it's worth saying it's you can get really what you you truly mean out which is a lot harder to say face to face and i think and it, i'm sorry go on you know when you're struggling when you're struggling to lift your head off the pillow you know just whatever 
whatever communication method does work for you and that was what worked for me at that time I mean I think you put it so you know so beautifully there when you said you just come and turn my pillow over and bring me a cup of tea and open the window that it was really just that really simple small acts of care that we almost feel maybe I don't know maybe we think they're too small so they're almost not necessary Mm, what was absolutely. it yeah what was it that you wanted in that time well unfortunately there isn't any golden bullet there wasn't any um there wasn't anything I particularly wanted I was so numb to the world I was so lost to my illness there was nothing I really wanted in that in that time and it's it's unfortunate to say but as becoming depressed is so subtle you know recovery from depression is so subtle as well but for me personally I found it that slowly um, over a period of months just the colour started returning to the world and day by day I just felt slightly better and I was having not every day was just horrific there was occasionally odd good day and now I'm grateful to say I have more good days than bad days that's fair I mean I think we're all grateful that you can say that but do you think there was a moment when or was there a moment when you went oh hang on I think maybe the corner has turned or do you still feel do you still feel, I guess, a bit fearful that it's lingering there now? I think it's something that will always be mm. part of me. Yeah. Um, I think I take it day by day and I'm not afraid anymore to take mental health days anymore and put myself first to look after my mental health. But ultimately, I am not in a depressive episode right now. I think it's safe to say. And I, a couple of weeks ago, realised that I haven't had a suicidal ideation is how I describe it for for months now which looking back I was thinking about taking my own life yeah. you know a lot it was at the forefront of almost everything I did and it was almost always an option um, in the back of my mind I always had that in my locker which is hard to say but something that's I'm quite grateful to say isn't the case anymore I think I think also Harriet one thing that we wanted it with the book we didn't want to sanitize anything we didn't want yeah. it to be a sort of saccharine version of our life there's no there's no chapter at the end where we pop a glass of champagne and say gosh wasn't that tricky you know we still live with this every day and Josh has good days and bad days and I think really that's kind of the point that it's a snapshot of what it's like to live as a sufferer and a snapshot of what it's like to live with someone you love who's suffering but um there and actually all of the things that we were talking about, those little things that you mentioned, Harriet, like turning your pillow over and things, I was devastated that it was only small things I could do. Yeah. But then the further we got into our journey, I realized actually this is quite wonderful. I don't need a ton of cash. I don't need a referral. I don't need to, you know, there's no magic retreat where I go and it, it, it's small things. It was those little things that we can all do. And that's the great thing about, about, about it, that it's, it was within our hands to make small changes and all those small changes and small kindnesses actually led to a big step in Josh's recovery. I think that's such a, a beautiful way of putting it, which is lots of small steps. There's no one, as Josh put it, no one gone bullet, there's lots of small steps. Um, just to say, if you've been affected by any of the issues that Josh was talking about there, please do give the Samaritans a call, 116-123, or you can find them at samaritans.org. Amanda, what was it like for you at this point living with a son who had such severe depression? Now, for me, I can only imagine that you must have been sort of terrified every day. Yeah, I, 
I still am. Mm. I still am, Harriet, because I feel the the concern and the worry is relentless, which in itself is exhausting. But also you have to keep um, in mind that it's not my battle, not my illness. And therefore I was kind of powerless to fix it. And I think it was that that um, impotence to, to, you know, I'm Josh's mum. And so throughout his life, I've always parented a bit like a a sweeper in curling, you know, going ahead on the track and removing all the bumps to make his glide path as smooth as possible. Um, And the fact that there was absolutely nothing at times that I felt I could effectively do to make a difference was something um, that really, I I found that very, very hard to, to accept and to comprehend. And I still do. And I still, even though Josh has, I mean, Josh has been fantastic now for a few months. You know, I'm touching wood, I'm crossing fingers, I'm chucking a bucket of salt over both shoulders because I can never remember which one it is. I'm doing all those things as I'm speaking to you. But I'm very aware that everyone I've ever, when, when the depression, the word was first used, I was really, I thought, oh, I don't like that. I don't want my son to have depression. I don't want my child to have a mental illness. I don't like it. And I don't know what to do for the best. And I remember realizing everyone I'd ever heard talking about it said, I live with depression or I battled depression. It didn't sound quick. It didn't sound like, oh, you know, I just had a bit of a cold and now I'm fine. And that terrified me. Um, That terror has actually, I would say, uh, receded a bit. I'm no longer fearful of losing Josh every day, but I do subtly and in ways that he might not even realize, even though he sat right next to me, uh, I watch him and that can't be great for him. That can't be great for... (laughs) You know, just he's just he's just a regular, you know, twenty-four-year-old man. That can't be great to have your mum, like you know, analysing your every comment. But I'm hoping with time and, and the longer Josh has these good periods, I'm hoping that I will ease off on that a bit because I know it's a, it it puts another pressure on him, and that's the last thing I want to do. But I found it incredibly difficult to get on with my real life. Um, you know, and I'm always very upbeat. I'm always very positive. I am the uh, the sort of the mirror to Josh, if you like. If Josh was feeling low, then I was smiling even harder as though, you know, I could put out into the universe all my positivity and, and it might help a little bit. Of course, that's utter yeah. rubbish, but it's you just do whatever you can to sort of cling to any any bit of driftwood when you're all when you're all, you know, on this sea of uncertainty. You just do whatever you can. Um, but I certainly I, I think that, yeah, the biggest thing for me was living with that fear. And I still do. Josh doesn't reply to a text. If Josh doesn't answer the door when I knock, all those things, you know, I, I just hope, I don't know if that will ever go away. I, I'm not sure it will. Josh, were you aware of that impact that you have, you've had on your mum and how do you feel about that? Well, at the earlier stages, mm. I had no clue how my, yeah. my illness was affecting my parents. But then, um, unfortunately, when I did find out, it made everything worse because mm. there was... When you're acutely aware of how it's affecting those you love you it's it's tough because partly you want to get better for them when you don't really want to get better for yourself you you're too far gone to care about what happens to you but it's it can be a really strong driving force to get better for those you love but at the same time if your your own mother doesn't know what's happening to you how can you expect wider society as a whole and part of that loneliness and isolation just increased when i found out i mean i think this is so sort of it's so heartbreaking which is that in taking on already you've got all the stuff you're battling with and then you're taking on how your family are feeling and trying to battle that as well Mm. what would you what would you say to the families perhaps of other people who are going through depression what would you what would you want them to know 
I'd say just it takes time. Mm. Just be very patient and you don't know what they're going through. Something that can be incredibly easy for you can be their Everest. If they, everyone, and it comes from a place of kindness, I know that, says go for a walk, spend more time outdoors. But if you're struggling to lift your head off the pillow, it's just not an option. No one, if you broke your arms, would say go lift, go lift those weights. But it's, you know, you're mentally broken and it, it is just time, unfortunately. And time and patience and a real sort of understanding and knowing that they are, you are there for them. I think that's a really good point. And, and I would say, Harriet, that, you know, Josh planned to take his own life. And the only reason Josh is still here today is through an awful lot of luck. We had a slice of luck on our side on one day and it made all the difference. And I think that really is the point that on that day, Josh wanted to end his life. But the next day, maybe he didn't. And the day after that, he certainly didn't. And I'm not saying that hasn't been a reoccurring pattern, but don't do that. Just hang on, you know, hang on because you are not on your own. You are not alone. And what is it you say in the book, Josh, that, that things, I can't remember the phrase. It's things been... can usually do, can and do get better. So just hang on and take things hour by hour, day by day. It doesn't always feel like it, but just being here when you don't want to be is an achievement. Yeah. Every day you stay on this earth does matter and it is an achievement. Yeah. Josh, do you think there were things that could have been in place whether that's at school or in society that could have helped you sort of before the depression really took hold? Are there things that schools and universities should be doing to support students better? Absolutely. And we need a sort of UK-wide, um, a UK-wide policy, really, because I went to two different universities and their mm. mental health provisions were just, just, they were both lacking but they were both incredibly different at one there was a very high number of students taking their own lives and there was more in place but even that wasn't good enough and the the first university I went to they had almost nothing in place but funnily enough not a lot of not a lot of people taking their own lives and I think especially now funding is only getting cut things are only being stopped and the wait times for these services can be months and when you need to speak to someone now or you're in crisis it's uh, just not good enough yeah. Mm. Amanda, what what support have you had and what support would you recommend those su so those supporting people through depression to have? I think um, in terms of like university, for example, I know that student minds are pulling together the university charter, which is almost a, a, a standardised best practice, which means that students and parents can opt in for communication with the university should their child get into crisis. And without going into specifics, there have been inquests dealing with some of the student suicides that we've studied, um, where the first time the parents um, were made aware there was an issue was when it actually came to the inquest level or into studying why their child took their own life. And very often those, those, those students had reached out, they had asked for help, but because they were bound by data protection, it even sounds so crazy saying it, data protection meant they couldn't contact those people's parents or they wow. couldn't you know, seek help on their behalf. So breaking down communication, I think is absolutely important and just making sure there's this opt-in facility, I think is one of the most uh, positive and probably beneficial things that you can do so that you know if your child does get into crisis, someone at that university will contact you. I mean, let's face it, they can be in school on one week yeah. and then a matter of eight weeks later, they can be in university and you know nothing about them. 
it's like they just fall through the cracks. You know, if they miss a lesson in school, someone's calling you up. You know, if if, yeah. if they're misbehaving, anything, there's so much communication that suddenly at university, uh, within a matter of weeks, which is already an isolating, unusual, strange, and new new time, uh, particularly at the moment, uh, there's absolutely they can feel like there's very little support, and I think that needs to change. And I think also it's about when you peer to peer is losing the Instagram filter that we put even on our words when we're talking to each other. So I can't tell you, Harriet, the number of times I've met someone in a supermarket and I say, how's, you know, how's your, your son? And they say, oh, marvellous. You know, got an amazing job, got an amazing car, an amazing apartment, a beautiful girlfriend, everything's great. How's yours? And I say, well, you know what? He hasn't stood up for three weeks. I don't think he's washed his hair for nearly six months and the sheets are practically stuck to the bed. What do I do? I'm losing him. And they look at you and they say, oh, well, actually, yeah, my child's suffering too. And I think, why do we have to go through the pantomime first of all? Why aren't we just all much more honest about how we're struggling and how we're suffering and remove the gloss and have open conversations because that's how we create understanding, how we create a community, how we learn from each other and how we support each other. And I think it's a real a, a real tragedy that still there is this taboo over mental illness. Um, we need to we need to have these conversations. And I'm very grateful for for you and talk radio i mean you know that dialogue is being opened up every day and it's getting better but i think as a as a as a nation as a society i think we can do a lot better i absolutely agree with you we we have to do better i think it's you know it's nothing that we yeah. can we have to um final finally i just wanted to ask you both the book the boy between is out now what did writing this book teach you about each other that's a good question I think it's fair to say a lot of unpalatable truths about both of us came out in the writing process and it was incredibly hard to write my first book especially you know on this darkest period of my life fingers crossed hopefully um and the it was incredibly tough right sort of re reliving and dredging up those darkest moments to put put on the paper was hard and we had to do it for weeks at a time obviously um the thing the thing that could have kept us going was if this book can help one person it's all it's all worth it and it's a book I wish had been around when I was suffering at my worst and if it if it can help one person it's it's all worth it and what I learned I think is that I didn't realize that my very emotional response to Josh's sometimes very um you know very hard to to fathom mental illness my crying didn't help anything it just made everything worse in fact I think I say in the book or Josh says, I can't remember now, you know, if crying solved things, then he'd have been flick flacking down the hallway and, you know, doing a big hurrah at the end of it. And so I've learned to actually try and contain my emotions a bit because my instinct was to just cry, look at him and cry, you know, hear his response and cry. And I've learned that actually I need to, I need to not do that. I need to be a bit more grown up and it, but this is still my journey too. Mm. You know, I'm not ill, um, but I am still really learning. You know, I'm 52 and I, have only in the last 18 months, two years, really understood how it is Josh lives and what it is he lives with. And I'm still learning every single day. And I think probably that's, yeah, that's the biggest thing I've learned is that I still don't know enough and I need to keep learning to know how best to support him. Both of you have done an amazing job with this book. Thank you so much for writing it. Um, I can't, for anyone who is dealing with a mental health issue or somebody in their lives dealing with a mental health issue it absolutely will help them it won't just be one person it will be many so thank you both 
um, Amanda Prowse and Josiah Josh Hartley there talking about their new book, The Boy Between. It's really beautiful and very, very brave. So I thoroughly recommend it. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Welcome back to Badass Women's Hour XL here on Talk Radio with me, Harriet Minter. Talk Radio, of course, the home of Julia Hartley-Grove from 6.30, Ian Collins from PM and Dan Wooten getting you home from 4pm. Uh, also the home of some incredible stories and one of those is my next guest, Riva Lera, who was born in 1958 with spina bifida. Her life when she was born was one of hearing everyone around her tell her that she wanted to change, but she knew she didn't. How did she become the woman she is today? It's told in her new book, Gollum Girl, and she's here with us now. Hi, Reva. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, tell us, first of all, for anyone who doesn't know, what is spina bifida? Uh, well, very briefly, it's when the part of the spine uh, in a fetus it develops as a kind of tube with the bones inside and then a wrapping around it. And in some cases, the wrapping doesn't quite close. And so part of the spinal cord can be damaged or actually stick out of the body. And um, that's what it is. And what, does this, what did this mean for you when you were growing up? How did it change your life? Well, um, when part of your spinal cord is sticking out uh, mm. and they have to put it back in the body, wherever that is, the nerves nearest that junction get damaged. So in my case, uh, it led to uh, some internal organ damage, some mobility problems. I am impressively not tall. And, uh, <laughs> and so there, there's definitely some, you know, morphological medical things. But more to the point, um, when I was a kid, people like me were just considered to be um, irrelevant to society, yeah. of no use, um, you know, most often institutionalized. So that, that was my potential future. And when you were growing up, did you really, did you feel that kind of level of rejection around you? Constantly, mm. um, not from my family per se, but uh, everything from being stared at and pointed at on the street to, um, you know, encountering kids in the hospital who, it's hard to explain. Mm. It's like we knew that we were outside of regular life, that, yeah. you know, we weren't going to be kids like other kids were. And. How did that shape your personality, do you think? Um, I learned to advocate for myself. I became very verbal to start with because when you are depending on other people to determine your future, um, what's going to immediately happen to your body, what's going to happen to your life down the road, uh, if you are able um, you learn that if you can talk to adults on a certain level and try to convince them that um, you're worth the effort. Um, sorry, someone is banging on my fire escape. 
in its interesting way. <laughs> Forgive me, I'm moving away don't from worry, it now. I fine. don't think we really want the anvil chorus uh, during our interview. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I very verbal, um, you know, a watcher, uh, really aware of body language because people will say one thing when they intend something else. And I think that's pretty... I think that's pretty common when you come from any constituency of people who are subject to the whims of others. You learn a lot more about them than they know about you. Yeah. And when did things start to change for you? Uh, In which respect? When did you... um, When did you start to develop yourself as an artist? Well, my mom, I, I come from a family of people with, with a lot of visual talent. Mm-hmm. So that was always part of just our family, you know, uh, the nature of the layers. was yeah. a lot of visual interest and um, ability. But uh, I guess there were other things I wanted to be growing up, but those doors were generally closed to me. Like I, there was no way I could go to med school um, or veterinary school, which were two of the my lifelong interests. Mm. And so the thing about art, besides having talent, is that um, it was something where I could determine my own, uh, I could invent my own career. This yeah. is certainly something a lot of people in the arts do, is that unlike other kinds of professions, there isn't a clear ladder to climb. You you almost all of us have to, to some extent, invent our job, invent our career, <laughs> invent our pathway. And so that made a lot of sense for me um, as someone who was denied a lot of other future roads, that this was one where it was normal mm. to, um, you know, declare for yourself how it was going to go. And as somebody who was born with a disability and grew up with it how do you what freedom did art give you um it's a good question uh here's the best thing about being an artist this this might not be exactly what you're asking me but here's the best thing um whatever art you're in you develop uh an internal conversation you get to know yourself, you become very, often very self-reliant and used to, uh, not only used to solitude, but actively seeking solitude in order to get your work done. Mm. You, you develop a strong interiority, um, which I love and which I think is hard to have if you're not doing something where you're always having to come up against yourself, like, what do I know about myself? What do I know about the world? What do I know about other people? All the time. And so if the outside world is telling you that you're um, not worth much, developing mm-hmm. that kind of sense of self is freedom. I think that's an, an incredibly important um recognition actually of the power of art and creativity and who we are as people um 
Tell us a little bit about disability culture and your role within it. Um, well, when I when I was a kid, uh, <laughs> well into my thirties, <laughs> I um, was so ashamed of being disabled that I really avoided other disabled people as much as I could. I denied being one. I didn't like to see myself much less in mirrors. I mean, even reflected in windows. It's, yeah. I was completely shut down. And um, that got harder and harder to, to pretend as I got older. It was pretty obvious that I was disabled to everybody but me. And, um, <laughs> but I thought that being part of that would just be living in shame and, and in humiliation. And then I met this group of people uh, in my late 30s here in Chicago who were some of the founders of American disability culture. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about them is that they were so funny and sharp <laughs> and not self-pitying and totally radical. For, I mean, just my, my brain just kind of went <laughs> and you know, almost overnight changed who I was. And so these were some of the people who were inventing disability culture in the, in the 80s and 90s. And so I was really privileged that they invited me in. And I fell so much in love with them and what they were saying that I started to do their portraits. Um, I re had always realized that disabled people didn't show up in our history except in some pretty awful ways, um, you know, sort of lepers and religious paintings, things, things like that. Like, yeah. oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Let's go be a leper. Um, <laughs> so I, but I wanted to use the language of art history to show the kind of beauty that I was really starting to see. It was such a different perception. So nobody, the few people, few people had been doing that up till then. And it's just led me into this life of depicting people of all kinds who deal with stigma, including queerness and race and yeah. other kinds of experience. And that's what I do. And that's such a, a beautiful thing, which is, you say you depict them, but you, you paint them, right? And you create works of incredible art, which are um, actually illustrated in your book, Golem Girl. But by creating these portraits, what did you learn about creating these portraits of other people's bodies? What did you learn about your own body? It completely changed my understanding of my own body. Um, I've always talked about this feeling of being alone in my body. Like it doesn't relate to other people's. It's its own kind of isolated phenomena, planet. <laughs> and when I started to get to know people who had a whole range of embodiments. It was like all of a sudden I really understood myself as part of a continuum and that, you know, it wasn't just meeting other people with spina bifida. I met people with just every morphology you can think of and not just morphology, but, but impairment, cognitive experience, psychiatric experience, I've been involved in disability culture and disability studies for a long time now. Yeah. And, um, and I really see now that the human body is so elastic. I mean, what, 
the way you can be human is just absolutely boundless. And that's where the beauty is for me, is that there's this constant redefinition in the disabled body of how you can live and the inventiveness, the create, you know, the, the originality mm-hmm. um, of disability. I mean, there in England, you have some of the most powerful members of disability culture anywhere in the world. I mean, Matt Frazier and Liz Carr and Claire Cunningham and Julie McNamara are all friends of mine, among other people. You've got Tanya Way Breber. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, I have to say that England led, led the way. UK really led the way. You guys were yeah. radicalized before we were. And we were looking to you for some mm-hmm. of the seeds of the culture. And you've just been so brilliantly inspiring um, for how to be original. So well, I feel really lucky. I mean, I think you, I was just listening to you there. I think you've been brilliantly inspiring to me today, which is the thing you said there about feeling, first of all, feeling alone in your own body and then this recognition that actually our bodies can be anything and the kind of the range and depth and incredibleness of them is something to celebrate rather than try and push aside, I think is something that's personally something that I've had to learn over many years and I'm still learning it and you articulated it really beautifully so thank you um Reva Lera there author of Gollum Girl which is a memoir her memoir of growing up with Spina Bifida but also um just beautifully illustrated with her portraits it's just a really beautiful book I thoroughly recommend you've been listening to badass women's hour if you like the show then help more people find us you can tag us or talk to us on social media using at badass women's hour or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating five stars please it helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us we'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.